hello everybody and welcome to another episode of GUcast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, here as ever with my co-host uh, Dr. Renu Epen, urologist here at Peter Mac. Hello Renu. Hello Declan. It's great to be back. Yeah, we haven't done one for a while. We took a little bit of a hiatus, but I think it's because we were waiting for this particularly special one. This guest. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Took a while to track him down. He's very busy. <laughs> he is. Um, and he's a super uh, friend of ours. One of those people we really miss um, from uh, physical meetings. One of those people you bump into at the AUA and EAU and say, oh, there's Dave Penson. Yeah. Um, but we don't get to see people so much anymore here in Australia, where we've totally closed our borders to the rest of the world. Uh, so instead, we have to make do with uh, virtual chats. But it is really, really uh, nice to sometimes catch up with people as best we can, which is all we do nowadays virtually. And so it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, our old friend Dave Penson to the podcast. Hello, David. Hello, guys. Thanks Hello. so much for having me. I, uh, I, I, I wish uh, that we could see one another in person. And I'm hopeful that uh, we're going to get there sometime in the next six to 12 months, you know? Um, uh, this is the United States. You can come on in. Half of the people here haven't been vaccinated anyways. You know, it's, uh, we, we see the world a little differently here, but uh, we'd, uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to uh, get to a point where we're meeting in person again. Uh, the AUA is going to happen in Vegas, uh, come heck or high water. Um, you know, so, so I'm optimistic. I'd much rather come down and visit you guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I, I can tell you what, AUA is September this year, I think, is it, in Las Vegas? There will yep. be zero Australians there, I think we can say safely uh, at this point. Yes. Where are we now? You know, May oh. 2021. And, and uh, our government this week, David, uh, uh, did their federal budget and, and announced in the budget that our international boards are border, borders are going to stay closed for, uh, drum roll please, another 12 months. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, we, this time yeah. next year is about the earliest that they're anticipating that either we can travel or people can um, travel back in. I suspect they're being a little cautious, Renew, but uh, AUA this year in three or four months' time, no way. No None of way. us are going. Unfortunately. Yeah. But well, it's I think, funny because yeah. some of the other uh, uh, societies here, like the American College of Surgeons, has already said they're going virtual for their meeting in the fall. But, um, you know, AUA is going to try to do some sort of hybrid um, because, you know, things are opening up here a little bit, um, which is nice, you know. So, uh, but I, I, I sure do hope I get to see you guys soon in person. Yeah. Uh, Zoom will have to do for now, but uh, I do miss the meetings and, and seeing friends and uh, catching up. Um, so hopefully soon, right? Yeah, hopefully, yeah. And look, and thanks so much for joining us. So we have you here on our screens. Our audience have to imagine uh, the great Dave Penson sitting there at home. Um, uh, um, And what we want to do, actually, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what we want to do is talk about a paper um, that your group published recently. um, But it really was triggered by a world-class keynote address that you gave at ASCO GU last year, which, Renu, that was the last physical meeting. That was my last physical meeting. Um, And his was the last proper keynote address I heard in person. Um, That's it. Very special for for many reasons. Yeah, 15 months ago. Wow. Amazing. So, yes, it was um, ASCO GU uh, 2020, February 2020 uh, in San Francisco. Just before the world fell to pieces, uh, Dave did a talk. So I'll introduce him first and tell you who he is for the few of you out there who don't follow him on Twitter, Eurogeek on Twitter, one of our favourite Twitter handles. Uh, David is, is uh, Chair um, and Professor of Urology at Vanderbilt University Medical Centre, uh, where he took over from uh, the great Jay Smith, another great friend of Australia, actually. Jay Smith has been a very frequent uh, traveller here. Uh, back five or six years ago, uh, Dave took over as, as Chair um, at Vanderbilt and, um, of course, a, an extremely famous uh, Department of Urology 
urologic oncology, I suppose, in particular. Um, and with his own very long uh, career um, focusing on, uh, well, lots of stuff to do with prostate cancer, but especially, I think, health services research. Uh, he led, he was PI on the, the PCOS study, of course, which uh, has an incredibly important publication in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago. And with that background, he was invited to do a keynote address at ASCO GU last year, focusing on financial toxicity. Okay. And it was an incredibly important topic uh, and, and led to this recent paper published in European Urology Oncology. And that's what we want to talk about today, uh, this topic of financial uh, toxicity, um, which, you know, I think we'll agree with some of the, the, the take-home messages David had in his talk, which is this is not talked about enough. It's not measured enough. It's not recognized enough. It's we clinicians uh, fail in, 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 in our cost communication, I think is one of the words that, to speak about it. But before we ask Dave to talk through the paper and the talk, um, Renu, you were actually sitting in the hall. I was, I was in Europe um, uh, uh, watching it uh, live and tweeting about it. Uh, but what were your recollections of, of this talk um, that yeah, Dave it was, gave? You know, it was such a unique talk because it really highlighted an issue that I think is, as physicians and surgeons, we really don't think about enough. And um, like you've mentioned, David, we fail to communicate that with patients and open up that channel of, of, of communication where we really should be addressing financial toxicity as though it is a side effect of the treatment that we that we administer. Um, and I was actually there with Sumit, um, who's the first author on this paper and, and really a fantastic read. Um, but David, we'd, I mean, you already talk about how difficult quality of life is to measure. Financial toxicity just adds another level of complexity to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, you really, it's funny. So I've been um, really focused on looking at quality of life, uh, specifically as I can allude to in prostate cancer for years, um, because I think uh, prostate cancer clinicians sort of downplayed the side effects of their therapies forever. And the way we were measuring it, we, we didn't do a good job. And I, and so, so, you know, we've, we've upped our game there. Uh, all, all the various specialties who take care of prostate cancer are really good at measuring symptoms and how much things bother patients when they have prostate or bladder or kidney cancer. We've, we've raised that part of the game. And as we've learned more, I think what we've realized is that there's this whole other patient reported outcome, financial toxicity, and it's actually very multidimensional um, that we're starting to realize is it really has a profound impact on patients in ways that you don't think, um, you know, we, uh, we talk about, you know, uh, drug costs and that's uh, frankly, I think a, a, a problem worldwide, but particularly in the United States, but there are other pieces to it as well. That I think as we start to peel back the onion and we realize, wow, you know, someone has bladder cancer and they're going to get BCG every week, or they've had a major cystectomy and now they can't work or they can't support their family or their, their significant other or their kid is taking off from work to take care of them. So this, and that feeds back onto quality of life. So I think this is a, a, a really underappreciated patient ported outcome um, that I think we're becoming much more aware of. I don't know what the levers are for physicians. There are some, but not as many as I, I as I would like. Um, uh, but that being said, uh, the first piece is awareness. We got to be aware of this, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like you said, that that is that is the first step. Um, aware, being aware of it, and um, really starting that communication channel with the patient to find out what is important to them. Because, like you said, financial toxicity—it's not uniform amongst all patients. Different things are different are important to different patients. 
Yeah, Renew, one of the things he spoke about uh, at the ASCO GU plenary, and he's a he's a world-class speaker, so he punches his messages out very well, but he quoted <laughs> um, a survey from the American Society of Breast Surgeons um, talking about this issue of financial toxicity. And, and rather shockingly, when you ask uh, uh, this eminent group of breast surgeons in the US, um, what are the things that they take into account when they're um, uh, considering clinical decision-making, recommendations to patients, only 6%, only 6%, include out-of-pocket costs in the things that they consider. Um, and I think that's what ekes that out is, you know, you maybe you have these multiple drug options or um, combination therapies uh, for patients in front of you and you're trying to counsel them. Um, but very many of them, as, as, as we'll talk about in a moment, come with very significant financial toxicity for people. And in only 6% of us breast surgeons in this example, are we considering these out-of-pocket costs? We're talking about other things, treatment profiles, adverse effects, the, the things that get measured well in studies, but we're not taking into account of it. And and, and in follow-up to that, the questions were asked, well, why, why aren't we as clinicians discussing these costs of treatment with breast cancer patients? And for the majority of patients, they said, or of clinicians, they said, I do not know enough about the costs of care or lack of resources. I literally don't know about this. I'm focusing on what I've read in the in the efficacy and the other patient reported outcome measures as I advise patients about drugs. I don't know anything about the costs and, and I can't help with the costs was another thing people said. Or I don't have enough time in my consultation to discuss costs. So so David, do you, do you want to reflect a bit more on that, that, that very yeah. graphic failure of how a clinician's breast in this example, but I'm sure it's the same everywhere, uh, are not actually putting it on the table as they're discussing treatment options with patients. Yeah, it's really an interesting issue. Um, and I think it varies from country to country. You know, if you're in Australia where you, you guys have Medicare and that's a good thing, where in the United States, Medicare is funny, right? So um, a different different type of insurance where I live. But, but you know, things are run differently in the U.S. versus, say, Canada or Europe. Um, and I think a lot of what's driving those responses with the breast cancer providers, that's an American study. I mean, for American uh, clinicians, we walk in there and, you know, one patient has one form of insurance, another one has another. And so it's very difficult for us to parse out what's, what is going to, what's going to be the cost of the patient and what isn't. And in fact, often the patient never finds out until they get their bill afterwards. So I think in certain regards, you know, uh, it's difficult for providers because they look and they go, well, I, I don't know what it's going to cost. So I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm just going to say, I'm going to worry about cancer control. I'm going to worry about cancer cure. And, you know, it's an excuse and it's a valid excuse, but we can't fall back on it anymore. You know, we start, a, we have to start thinking about this because the reality of it is, is that, you know, it makes a huge difference to patients and there are things we can do uh, when we're working with patients to minimize the cost to them. Um, you know, and, and the, for us, the great example I think is imaging um, in the U S you know um, I know in Australia, when we talk about prostate MRIs, I'll never forget uh, when I was down there. And I think you guys pay about two or 300 uh, Aussie dollars for an MRI. I mean, let me tell you, it's, you know, literally five times out here in the United States, if a patient's paying out of pocket, and even if they have insurance, they're probably paying double that with their copay. And so for me as a, um, as a clinician, you know, I have to think about prostate MRIs. I have to think about genomic testing. All these things, are they really going to change things? Because just writing it alone is adding cost. Um, but what what's happened is, is at least in the U.S., um, and maybe in Europe too, because um, I've never seen this in the AU either, is 
we're so frustrated by this, I think, as clinicians, we can't get good information, so we won't even touch it in our guidelines. You'll notice in the NCCN guidelines and the AUA guidelines, and I'm and I, I think in the EAU guidelines too, you don't see any discussion about costs. And we're starting to go there, but it's a politically charged topic. And so I think a lot of clinicians are afraid of it, and we, we sort of have to turn it around. Um, a bit of a long answer to your question, Declan, um, and a bit of a ramble, but I, I, I think that things are evolving. Uh, I want to defend clinicians um, who aren't thinking about it, um, if only because they, they don't have good information. But that, to me, that lays down a gauntlet for us. How can we get good information to clinicians and patients so they can make smart decisions that minimize financial toxicity? That's right. That's a good and idea for a grant. Yeah. I ought to do that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You got the idea here first. Well, <laughs> you know, that's I was was going to move on and ask you about how we acknowledge. So what we're talking about now is like daily clinical practice, patients in front of you. We have an armamentarium of drugs or surgeries or whatever it's going to be. But um, the other opportunity is in trials, in prospective trials where endpoints are defined and, and they will inform guidelines or lead to reimbursement and so on, primary endpoints, secondary endpoints. And, you know, we've all got very used to these terms. Overall survival, obviously very important for us in oncology, but other things like uh, PFS, uh, MFS, etc. And I remember around the time of your talk, uh, I tweeted out that said we should be measuring BFS, uh, bankruptcy-free survival, uh, as an endpoint uh, for some of these patients. So uh, on the topic of grants, one of my frustrations is it's, it's very difficult to get grant funding for a de-escalation trial in oncology where you might say well let's do a thing where that might lead to reduction in the number of patients having salvage radiotherapy by better selecting the ones etc 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 and and um, whereas escalation trials of let's combine yet another extremely expensive therapy one with extremely expensive therapy two and have extremely exp- expensive precision uh, profiling in it built into it etc you know and that's going to keep the pharma industry happy who get expanded indications and blah, 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 blah. Um, but these escalation trials are easier to get funded rather than de-escalation trials. And one, one would think uh, at the very outset, the payers who often fund these NIH or you know, MRC or NHMRC and so on should actually protect some funding for de-escalation trials or have you know, uh, bankruptcy-free survival, as we joke about, built in as a proper prominent endpoint in these trials and that would make it more uh, visible to us as we consider this or as you try and put them into guidelines to say well yeah but you have to consider these drugs are incredibly expensive even though you eke out a you know a four-month survival benefit you're absolutely right and if you look you know here in the states in particular you know we've we never do trials like that um, there are some of the specialty societies, the clinician societies uh, have tried to wrestle with this. There was a, something called the Choosing Wisely Initiative, where they were trying to you know, reduce overutilization of low value interventions, but you don't see research around it. And in fact, you know, there is verbiage here in the States around NIH funding uh, uh, that really makes it hard to do cost trials. But you know, Declan, you know this as well as I do. Uh, um, every one of these clinical trials, you can run a cost-effectiveness analysis off of it. And in fact, that's they sort of do that in the UK. You know, NICE looks at uh, uh, cost-effectiveness with every drug they approve or don't approve. Um, a lot of people don't like that. You know, you're, the, certainly pharma doesn't like it, and um, often the clinicians don't like it. But the flip side is, is it's a limited resource. And we have to be thoughtful about it. Because in the end, if the government isn't carrying the, the cost, the patient is, and 
if the government is ultimately the patient is in the form of taxes, right? So um, you're absolutely right. We have to start thinking about ways to look at de-escalation trials, um, but they're not they're not sexy, no. right? No. Um, no. And it's like you know, it's like a negative clinical trial. You can never get it published. So uh, so it's, it's problematic. I mean, until recently, we didn't really have any validated instruments for for assessing this. But um, speaking of cost, we have now the cost questionnaire, which is the comprehensive score for financial toxicity. And perhaps that is something that should be built into every trial. Yeah, I, I, I think it should, frankly. Um, and, you know, I think that doing a sort of indirect and direct cost analysis is, you know, both because the, the cost questionnaire is, is really a financial toxicity tool, but also looking at, you know, direct and indirect costs as they actually are incurred during the trial is important as well. You know, in the CSER study, which is sort of um, uh, this this large uh, cohort study that we did, we just had a, a pub in JU on financial toxicity. Earlier on, we just used a few uh, items, but but Renew, we put the cost, we're doing 10-year follow-up, Dan Barocas is the PI now, and we're doing um, uh, the cost questionnaire because yeah. it's a much more comprehensive tool. It wasn't available when we designed the study 10 years ago, or at least I wasn't aware of it at the time. But but the reality of it is, is that um, this is a critical endpoint for patients, you know, yeah. and it's, and it's it, like I said, it's multidimensional. That's right. And, and you, you know, in, in the paper that you and your team wrote, you put so eloquently this ripple effect that, that material costs have you know often we think well we don't know enough about the material cost of treatment to to really counsel patients but that leads to a lot of psychological stress for the patient and they develop these really um adverse coping strategies tell us a little bit more about that well, I mean, what they do is they forego other uh, elements of their lives. And if you look at the literature, you know, there are all sorts of examples. They, they, um, they don't always fill all their prescriptions um, because they can't afford it. Uh, they uh, cut back on food and travel. Um, uh, they're, they, they just really change. You know, they, they are borrowing money. Um, uh, they, uh, are, um, they're, they're just reducing their budgets. They have money to pay for, uh, for, 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 you know, their, their medical care. And can you imagine, okay, I have cancer. And so there's this great drug, but the only way I can afford it is to go from three meals a day to two. And, you know, uh, this winter, I'm not going to get a new coat. And that happens. I, I remember in your in your talk, you mentioned a statistic, something like 45, 46% of patients reduce the amount of food they buy to be able to afford yeah. these treatments. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that, 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 that's right. And there was another study that I think some people, you know, have uh, uh, some issues with, but there was one study that basically said, looking at the, uh, I think it's the health and retirement study here in the US, that 42% of patients had a complete like 100% depletion of their net worth at two years. I, I got a funny feeling that's an wow. overstatement. Yeah. Um, but, but on the flip side, uh, it's not an insignificant number. You yeah. know, if you, you know, Scott Ramsey has a paper from uh, Washington where the numbers are a little bit less, um, uh, but, but they're there. And the other thing about the Ramsey paper um, is that he tied financial toxicity to survival, you know, because, yeah, you're getting your cancer uh, treatment, but you're not eating. 
you know, where you're yeah. not getting your meds for your diabetes. And so I think, you know, that's kind of where we're, we're going with things is people are forced to make some really tough choices. Yeah. And not just that, but there's also the, um, you know, because he- this is important in all aspects of health there, but healthcare, but particularly in cancer, because when you talk, when you think about the biological effects of that kind of stress, increased cortisol in the system, your ability to fight cancer, um, I mean, this is why they say that the mortality from your cancer is actually highest in the five in within the five years that you declare bankruptcy. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and I think you know people have a hard time understanding that, and I think what you just said is critical. You know, people get stressed. There's a biological underpinning for why you're going to have a worse clinical outcome. Yeah. Um, and again, if you're worried about going bankrupt, and you know, a lot of these, you know, GU cancers in particular tend to affect older people, right? Uh, prostate affects older men, bladder tends to affect older men and women. Um, They have kids, a lot of them have grandkids. And now they're worried about how am I going to, you know, provide for my children and my grandchildren. So that's a whole other stress level that uh, uh, comes into play. And a lot of times, you know, they have grown kids and they're the grown kids are taking off from work to take care of them. I have one patient who, um, uh, who I did a cystectomy on recently, um, and I, I will be careful because of HIPAA, whose son was a prostate cancer survivor and was concurrently going through uh, radiotherapy. And they were driving in about two hours to see us because, you know, we have a lot of rural area around Nashville. And basically, um, the, 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 the father... Uh, who probably would have benefited from uh, uh, potentially uh, um, a neoadjuvant chemotherapy was like, I just need to get this out because my son has to have his salvage radiotherapy. So think about that, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, the, 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 the toxicity there and the, the sort of, you know, the, 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 it's like Sophie's choice, you know, I mean, <laughs> the, let's, let's choose, you know, lesser of two terrible outcomes. Yeah. And you highlight a few important points because even though in Australia we're we're fortunate just because of the way our healthcare system is structured, we still have to think about the indirect costs, you know, um, time off work, um, caregivers time off work, uh, lack of time spent with children, and then the the effects of the side effects of, of a lot of the treatments that we prescribe. Yeah, and then and yeah. David and team highlight a paper from Australia because um, in your recent paper in European Neurology yeah. Oncology, uh, which is a systematic review led by Sumit uh, Banvedia, um, you do look at data from all around the world because, of course, it's different all around the world, but the familiar theme of it's not discussed well enough and there are incredible stresses associated are there, but there is a nice study from Australia published a couple of years ago, um, uh, a survey of 289 men with localised prostate cancer um, uh, and a third said that they were struggling to get by financially um, a quarter said uh, they were working at diagnosis and they reported retiring early. A third reported a reduction in work or taking leave. And in total, 70% report that prostate cancer-related expenses were higher than expected. And so, Renew, although we have a good uh, safety net here, universal health coverage with Medicare, uh, still there are costs, uh, out-of-pocket costs associated. Here it tends to be more so with things like uh, localized treatment, like surgery. Uh, up front uh, rather than these uh, systemic drugs the really expensive ones um but um i, I think that's a, a really important theme that even if we think we have a good safety net there are still as shown uh, a lot of issues with some of these patients still struggling uh, to get by uh, and we we don't appreciate it it's these surveys that come out that measure that and almost embarrass us into saying oh did you not realize that your patients were suffering this financial distress 
Well, that's, I mean, I think that's a really uh, important point. Uh, you know, the U.S. is a, is a unique uh, uh, healthcare uh, market. Let's just leave it at that. And when I gave that talk in San Francisco, there was a question that was basically sort of how does this apply to the rest of the world? Um, because, you know, yeah, but it does. And something you said, Declan, from that study from Australia, and there was another study from Canada, and it's, it's the indirect costs. People are retiring early because of their treatment. Now, maybe that's not a big deal. Maybe they have the resources to do that. But even with good health care coverage, and you guys do have, you know, a good system down there, people are losing productivity. And that's very stressful. And it's, 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 you know, it really is an adverse outcome. Um, and we don't think about that. And I, I don't, I don't look at it and think, oh, wow, we're, we're so insensitive. Um, we didn't think about it. I mean, I think a lot of us are sort of mea culpa, mea culpa. I don't think we should be looking at it that way. I think that a better way to look at it is, you know, our understanding of the patient experience in every way has, you know, improved over the last, you know, uh, a few decades. And so this is just another example of us opening our eyes as we get more advanced with technology, with pharmaceuticals, that this is, these are going to have other unintended side effects that we never thought about. And it, I mean, it all feeds back into what we're ultimately aiming to do, which is to improve not just the quantity, but the quality of life. Quality of life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there are a lot of people who would trade off, uh, you know, absolute years of life for better quality of life. And they're, exactly. you know, they're, they're and that, and that's why I think that that communication channel is so important because we need to find out what's important to the patient. Yes. Um, I mean, there are some patients who will come up to us and say, I don't care what this costs. I'll take it. I'll take that treatment. But that's not for everyone. I don't, I don't, yeah, so do we need to educate ourselves better? It, it's a familiar theme in Dave's talk and in, in, the, in this recent paper about cost communication. It's, it's not a term that we talk about much, mm. just like that cost questionnaire. How many of our listeners out there have heard of the cost questionnaire, COST, that we referred to earlier? Don't, don't we need to really position that, the, these discussions farther forward as we educate ourselves as clinicians? Because we, we don't learn about how we discuss these sensitive issues with patients. As that breast surgeon questionnaire showed, they think they don't have time or don't know enough about it to discuss it. And unlike if you go and, you know, book a book a holiday or you're looking at buying a new car, you know, cost is an incredibly important part of our consideration and we're yeah. well informed about it in the way we run the rest of our lives. But how come then bizarrely when you come into a, a doctor's office in a hospital, especially in oncology, as we're talking about today, that it's not an extremely prominent part uh, in systems where out-of-pocket costs are there? It's a, it's a total failing. It's almost bizarre because the whole rest of life is focused around, you know, understanding cost and value and, and so on. And yeah. yet doctors don't talk about it. That's, that's a good point. I think it's a cultural thing, at least. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a cultural thing worldwide where physicians, particularly cancer uh, uh, clinicians, are sort of taught to first and foremost is keeping people alive, right? And, uh, you know, cost is a dirty word. So, um, you know, we do have to change the way we think about this. Um, so I completely agree with you. The other place where I think there's opportunity for clinicians right off the bat um, there are things that we do which I would refer to as discretionary, um, and, and there, you know, there are times, and, and the great example is hormone therapy and prostate cancer. There are times when it is just we shouldn't be using it at all, say just as primary therapy for localized disease. There are times when it clearly shows a benefit, uh, say alongside, um, uh, you know, in high risk uh, disease alongside radiation. But there are discretionary areas as well, you know, in a setting of a, a biochemical or Currents, 
uh, where there's no evidence of Mets. Do we need to use hormones or not? And there, there's some evidence to guide us there, but that's where I would argue that it's maybe a little bit more discretionary. And that's a place where as a starting point, it's just the jumping off point where we should be thinking, okay, I, this patient, you know, maybe they don't want to bear that cost. You know, maybe they don't want to be coming to see me every three months. Now with the new oral agent here, where more of in the United States, more of the cost is going to be shifted to the patient with that because it's paid for a little differently. Uh, you know, we really need to be thinking about that. Uh, just the stuff we do that's discretionary. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, and I think that it, it it it's only when we're aware of it that we will that we will incorporate that into our into our prescribing practices and our treatment practices. Um, David, one other thing I wanted to touch on was in your keynote address, you you focused a little bit on kidney cancer, and um, one of the examples you gave was was for sunitinib, um, and you know. It, a couple of years down the track now, you know, even though the costs associated with sunitinib, uh, especially in the US, can be quite, quite high, it's nothing compared to the newer drugs that are coming out and, yeah. the, and the IO drugs yeah. that are coming out. What, what's going to happen there? Well, uh, and so I would um, tell your listeners to do a PubMed on anything written by Stacey D. Sutsina. Uh, Stacey's here at Vanderbilt. Uh, she actually has a secondary appointment in our department, but she's a, a, a pharmacoeconomist. Uh, um, and she's written a lot about the cost of cancer drugs in some very high profile places. And it's, uh, I mean, Renew, it is just spiraling out of control. Uh, it's getting more and more expensive for countries like Australia, like Canada, like the UK, you know, the, the government's not going to be able to bear the cost of it. Uh, and we're already starting to see that uh, in the UK with NICE turning down um, uh, uh, some of the IOs recently, if I remember correctly. I sort of read something along those lines. Here in the US, you know, the, there's this copay component to it. And even though everyone sings the praises of our Medicare, which is the insurance for the elderly, the slide I put up about Sunitinib, you know, is shocking to me because people say, okay, well now we have what we call part D coverage and we've improved it in the last 10 years. You know, the, the Obamacare uh, uh, bill here improved it. So patients, instead of paying, uh, you know, $10,000 a year are paying, you know, $8,000, $9,000 a year. It's a yeah. lot of money for it. Because when you start to say, okay, you only have to pay 5% of the bill but it's 5% of $5,000 a month or $10,000 a month, yeah. it adds up, you know, that old joke, you know, a buck here, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a, a buck here, a buck here. Soon you're talking real money. Yeah. yeah you're talking real money here. You know? and, and then if you compare that to as a percentage of, of a person's total earnings for a month, that is a significant chunk. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and that's one of the other pieces that uh, there's, there's a literature out there on what people will spend in the acute phase of cancer care of their, their take home and, 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 you know, a third to half of their money. So it's not surprising that what it, someone's got to give so they mm. don't eat, yeah. you know, you know, there's a, I know we need to wrap up, but I, I want to share with you a story that a breast cancer a surgeon friend of mine, a, a really um, uh, a person who I hold in the highest regard was telling me what it can be like in the, consulting room when you've got your patient in front of you she's newly diagnosed with breast cancer there with her partner um and you're breaking the news and saying look and i think you should have blah 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 you know and then 
uh, this chap was saying, because it's actually required here for us to talk about uh, financial consent, at least according to our college um, requirements and so on, uh, we should talk about this. So, you know, when you start the bit to say, I think you should have surgery, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, I need to say to you that uh, I, I think with your with your level of healthcare coverage, you may be facing uh, some out-of-pocket cost. And he said, what happens next is then the partner reaches over, uh, grabs the, his wife or uh, partner by the arm and says, it's okay, we, we'll, we'll manage that, you know. And then you come and say, you could have said $300, you could have said $3,000 or $10,000, you know. And he said there's a very vulnerable um, I- environment there where depending on how, you know, yeah, well-meaning or unscrupulous a person might be, you, you know, you, the deal is done before you say the bill's going to be $10,000. Or yeah. what about an option to go into the pro- public system here, which we have, as I say, a universal health care. And he said it's a very vulnerable environment when, when people are being advised about options. And often that's not a rare situation. It's okay. Uh, whatever it is to t- get get granddad through his whatever it's okay we'll we'll and you're talking about perhaps selling a wing of a house you know or yeah. selling some sheep uh, for people to afford something without fully understanding that the benefit is really marginal and would you prefer to keep the sheep and have a better you know um uh, inheritance for your grandkids etc etc it's it's a, it's a really really complicated issue and i think david that's why your talk was amazing last year this new paper from your fantastic colleagues uh, one of whom uh, we should acknowledge our australian colleague um, Harriana dillon uh, was on oh, that yes. paper from your neurology mm-hmm. oncology um, a fabulous uh, yeah, researcher here in Australia works closely with hands up um, to try and raise this uh, conversation and educate ourselves about how we speak to our patients about it. So, so thank you for doing that. Thank you, guys. It's always it's always good to to speak to you. <laughs> yes, and, and we'll I do hope it over. We get to do it in person uh, soon. Uh, raise it a glass and uh, and toast uh, the world reopening, huh? Oh, totally right. And, and before we sign off, two last things I want to do is, uh, first of all, I mean, you're a sports mad geek and not, as everybody knows, who <laughs> follows the uh, Euro Geek Twitter handle. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but uh, I, golf, I think, is one of your main ones. And um, I, I just was scrolling back through your Twitter feed. And we haven't seen all those great golf shots that you always put up. But I, I know you're, you're holding picture on your Twitter feed is this beautiful, looks like a Lynx course in the west of Ireland or Scotland, to, to my eyes, actually. It's Northern Ireland. I it, know that picture. It's from Royal Portrush. Oh, Royal Portrush. Okay, there you go. So so I just wanted to say that to you. You know, get back out there uh, posting those pictures to cheer us all yeah. up um, whenever the situation allows. Um, and my young nephew, I think I messaged you to say, my nephew yep. um, in the west of Ireland, uh, uh, Sam Murphy, won the Irish Amateur Open last year um, and has now got a big scholarship to go to um, uh, the US. Uh, he's going to uh, Grand Canyon University. Uh, he just signed with them. Um, he won by eight shots last year, a competition that Rory McIlroy won a few years previously, so okay. I'm going to find an excuse to go and visit my <laughs> my 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 young nephew Sam Murphy, um, and we'll we'll find a reason to swing by Dave and have a game of golf. Uh, I, I would love that, as I always say, I'm a bad golfer who's played a lot of good golf courses. <laughs> so. Fantastic! And the final thing I want to say to you is uh, is to pass our condolences on to you about the passing of your dad um, last month. Your dad passed away having battled illness, and you wore this on your heart as you do with a lot of things you do in life. Um, and we were all very sorry to to see your uh, the news about your dad passing away having um, uh, battled very bravely against uh, dementia. I think you talked about very close to my heart as my father has dementia as well. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, well, thank you. First of all, thank you. Uh, it, it was, it was sad. Um, and, and, you know, he, he was mentally gone years ago. It's unfortunate, but on a, on a lighter and happier note about my father, who I adored and who I thought the world of, he was actually a member at Royal Portrush <laughs> and was a plus golfer. So he was a good golfer who played a lot of good golf courses. <laughs> 
Well, well, at least you took something away, David. Where did it all go <laughs> wrong? Oh, yeah. gosh. A taste for good golf courses, but not the <laughs> ability. He, he kept all the ability. Oh. Uh, may he rest in peace. He was a good egg. Oh, you're brilliant, David. We're, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We've, we've really enjoyed this podcast. Yeah, what, what a lovely thank way to finish. I didn't realize that. So thank you so much to David Penson for joining us from Nashville and um, Vanderbilt University today to talk about this incredibly important topic of financial toxicity. We, we I think we're determined to come back and revisit this, and we're going to get some of our medical oncology friends and others maybe get Harianna on actually to talk about this uh, during the rest of the year but that's all for now Uh, take care and goodbye